Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking the financialization of the oil market. What does that mean? How has it come about? And what are the consequences for market participants and the risks involved? And how could this trend cascade to other commodities? Our guest is Greg Newman. Greg is the co-founder and CEO of Onyx Capital Group, the largest market maker by volume in oil swaps. And Greg's had 10 years experience in and around the financial oil markets. Also, I want to take the opportunity to remind everyone, I'll be moderating panels at the upcoming Reuters events, Commodity Trading USA, on the 7th and 8th of June in Houston. And I hope I can see you there. As always, if you enjoy the episode, please do leave us a review on the platform you're listening on, and I hope you enjoy the show. Greg, thanks for joining. Thank you very much for having me. So we've got a a very big topic today, and one that has many, many consequences to it um, that affects everyone in the the commodities sector. So we're talking about the financialization of the oil markets and the consequences of that. So before we go any further, can you just take us back to before the financial crisis and how the oil market used to trade. It was predominantly OTC, bilateral trades. Can you just sort of set the history up for us before we go into how it's developed over the last 10 years since the financial crisis? Absolutely. I mean, certainly oil, to begin with, whenever we talk about the oil markets, it's always been seen as this opaque market. I think that comes from about 10 years ago and, and everything prior to that. The markets were OTC traded, as you're saying, and what that really meant was everything was traded via credit lines. And so you needed a big balance sheet just to have a credit line with a bank, you know, a Goldman Sachs, a Morgan Stanley, a JP Morgan. And certainly the players that, well, the immediate barrier to entry was there just from being able to set up a credit line. So what happened was if you were a bit part player, like an airline or someone just needed to hedge, you could only really do it by going directly to the bank and you could only really do that by accepting kind of whatever price they gave you. So there's an element of it being very opaque from a pricing perspective, but also very difficult to even get involved to the same extent that some of the larger players were back then and how certainly are now. So that, that set up the landscape for essentially a huge amount of volume and influence in oil prices around the world dictated by a very small number of individuals and you know it's not that long ago but this pre-financial crisis banks were the biggest in all markets of course but in oil markets in particular you know goldman sachs jp morgan morgan stanley they not only had a huge derivative presence they had a big physical presence as well and i'm not sure how if that's forgotten or not but you know the, the trade houses we know today they really were the banks uh, back then and it made sense because they had all the credit power and the rest of it. So what was very tricky about that environment was, I think, yes, as I say, the barrier to entry, but also there was no running price for any other contract other than the futures. So the oil swaps market in particular is what we call it, but really they were defined as swaps before they were on the exchange for that very reason in that they were contracts designed for more accurate hedging, but you could only trade them with banks bilaterally or counterpart to counterpart through a credit line. But in uh, 2011, end of 2012, sorry, ICE in particular, and then CME started to list these oil swap contracts on the exchange. And I think 
just looking at it superficially, it's, oh, they started to list these contracts and then people started to get on the exchange and suddenly there was more transparency. Uh, that's absolutely correct. But I think really the biggest shift was the financial crisis because the banks had to pull out from having so much cash on their balance sheet or not, not pull out, but they had to restrict the amount of cash they had in their balance sheet, which meant they couldn't as easily offer out credit to everyone. So they had to be more restricted there. They were also restricted in their proprietary trading, so the Volcker rule. So suddenly the banks who had really a trade house type model that we know today, they suddenly were becoming just a pure financing uh, role uh, almost overnight. So they had to pull out, the, the margins weren't considered attractive anymore. You know, this went from pretty much every bank wanting to be involved in commodities and oil to suddenly no one wanting to be in. And it was only really a few people, few banks who, who stayed behind. So that just completely changed the market. So that combined with interest rates being very low meant access to cash was a lot easier. And I, you know, I only know this now in a way, I didn't really fully comprehend it at the time. But, you know, if you have the double whammy of wanting more transparency, but also needing to put up cash for the exchange. As soon as cash is cheap, cash is much more easy to access from a lending perspective, suddenly getting access to the exchange wasn't a big deal. And uh, that two-pronged attack of you know regulations coming in, restrictions coming in on the banks, and then access to leverage and, and cash in the, uh, from, from the kind of financing banks led to the oil market having these participants that were essentially just previously no chance of being in the market to suddenly being able to, to, to participate. So there's been a huge journey since. There's a, there's a talk about that global financial crisis and some of the regulation that pushed these contracts onto the exchange. But just so we're all on the same page. So prior to the financial crisis, there was price discovery, discovery around these futures. Can you just talk to that a little, what, what there was available and what were the liquid markets that other people could participate in? And could you also, I know it's very basic, but could you also just, for my benefit, describe, you know, just make sure what is a swap? Can you just give us an understanding of that as well? Because it will be important later on, of course. Sure. No, of course. The futures markets, particularly Brent, WTI, Arbob and Gasol, you know, those, those contracts go a long way to hedging the majority of price risk. And you could certainly trade them in a fairly liquid manner, right? The bid offer was, has been tight for a long, long time. Lots of volume, lots of open interest. I think it was very well understood from an, from an early kind of you know, 20, 30 years ago almost. So that was very much available, but to even retail traders, uh, index providers. So there's a lot of financialization in there to some degree. I would say 10 years ago, not so much machine learning, uh, systematic trading, not nearly as much as there is now, but of course that was that, that was still on the radar. And you know, there's still a lot of financial-led trading rather than just pure physical hedging. So swaps, it's it's frustrating in a way because it, it, it doesn't actually mean anything. The swaps they actually are futures. They're just what they used to be called swaps because of the definition when you were trading with banks. But the way I put it is, the swaps market is the sub market for oil. So you have these benchmarks, the um, crude futures and some product futures. But to really get exposure to all the different products and all the different regions with all the different specifications. In theory, there can be a swap contract or a, a futures contract for any single one of those contracts or specifications. So ICE has been on that journey. They started off with maybe 50 odd, grew to 100 odd. And then, you know, in the last eight years, it's grown to something like 650 plus 
going off what Mike Whitner said to me and on a podcast actually a couple of years ago. So, they, and they're still accelerating it. But the idea is if you want exposure to something, it can be listed uh, on the exchange. You just need a third party price reporting agency to settle the index price, come up with a transparent formula. And as long as that goes through an audit and it meets the regulatory rules, in theory, any any index can be listed as a contract. And so that's we've been on this huge journey. So it's not only financialization in the sense of more traders trading financially, it's also the breadth of contracts has become astronomical because you go from wanting to eliminate price exposure. So when people say the oil price, it's frustrating sometimes because you know, what does that even mean? It's there's so many, there's, there's thousands of contracts, quite literally. So when you say the oil price, I think people mean a crude futures price, and that's the benchmark. But you know, which crude future? So even, even Brent, if you want the exposure to actually get you to the physical underlying crude that prices Brent, there's a big difference in that price between the dated Brent swap that or the dated Brent future that um, underpins this Brent futures contract. It, they're actually two very different prices and move very differently. So if you can imagine you go from, say, 95% hedged, which sounds like a great deal, right? If you go in and buy some oil in West Africa and you go in and hedge it with the Brent futures contract, you're 95% there in terms of managing your price risk. That's, that's very good. But of course, there's so much volume in the oil market. It's you know 100 plus million barrels a day. There is a huge amount of exposure. So one cent, quite literally one cent on a standard cargo, you're talking 10 grand for a West African cargo. So, and if for a VLCC, you're talking 20 grand. When we talk about a dollar, you're talking millions of dollars straight away. So when you have a high notional price, like we have now, like say around $100 per barrel, that $5 per barrel that's not hedged by just using the futures contract is potentially five plus million dollars. So there became this increasing appetite for more ref- so swaps or futures that more accurately reflected the physical that they were trading. So it was kind of Brent futures plus differential that got you to another future that was a lot more closely aligned to the physical you're trading as margins have become tighter as the oil market has become a lot more competitive huge amount of oil traders being launched every year and actually even the bigger trade houses becoming more sophisticated this just puts a squeeze on the margins just naturally with laws of economics so there's the desire for constant hedging at a more and more granular level and these days you know you'd want to look for like a 99.5 percent price accuracy in your contract versus your physical whereas as i say it used to be something like 95 percent can you just give me an just so i have it right what what is an example of the swap that gets you from 95 to 99 you know 99 no one really trades these swaps as an outright price they trade the brent futures or the wti futures and they trade the differentials to get the more granular hedge on so it's really the differentials that are in the sub-market. Some people mm. like to trade the outright, but really the most liquidity is in getting from the flat price and then getting to the more granular hedge, which is why, a little bit of a tangent here, but why when traders, sorry, traders, producers or exchanges, they try and come up with a new contract for an outright price. And sometimes it's misguided. Like the Abu Dhabi contract right now, the Merban is not working. That wasn't surprising to any financial player. It was the same thing with Oman. It's the same thing with WTI uh, Houston futures contracts because what they're looking to do is take liquidity from the kind of flat price pool. So the flat price pool is basically people trading the outright price. So every oil trader, no matter what they're doing, if they're going to trade the outright price of crude, they use Brent or WTI and then they will trade differentials to get where they want to. 
So they can move it to Dubai, they can move it to rent risk, they can move it to product risk, and that's how the game works. You, you get rid of your outright exposure from crude, and then you start trading the differentials. And those differentials can be very widely between region to region, specification to specification, but obviously product to product as well. And that's when you get into the refinery margin, which these guys need to hedge, right? The refiners got that exposure to product minus crude, not just outright prices. So they're constantly trading this differentials as well. So really, when we say all swap markets, we mean the differentials that get you to more and more granular areas. Right. Okay. So you had the global financial crisis that pushed things onto the exchange. It also obviously lowered the cost of borrowing and, and introduced a lot more money into the system. So suddenly you've got this much greater granularity in the amount of financial contracts available out there for different participants to do different things with. Just staying at the moment on the, the, those strategic oil traders, right, with their producers and consumers and the trade houses, how did that change the opportunity within oil trading, how does that change the, 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 how the market itself trades? Well, it's been on a long journey. I think it's still going on this journey, but really it, the main core summary of the difference was it moved from supply and demand physical led trading to financial led trading, which is a, looks, looks very different and has very different dynamics, but there's still most of the market is not too willing to accept this because it's a very legacy market dynamic. So what I mean by that is, especially in the oil swaps, but certainly even the futures, much more of the market back then was physical hedging or at least big players who are linked to the physical markets trading derivatives. So they would see a changing in the supply and demand economics with their forward models, looking at their, their own system. And it was a huge advantage because they'd say, clearly there's going to be a gasoline shortage. Clearly there's going to be a crude shortage or oversupply. And they, they would just, it would be as simple as that. Oversupply, sell, undersupply, buy, and very, very binary. And I'm not going to say it was easy, of course, that, you know, it was, there was other types of issues. It was liquidity issues and people getting in the way, you know, if you needed to get on a trade and people have found out, you know, you're a large trade house or a major, people would try and get in front of you. And that's obviously, there was a lot of dynamics about how to formulate your trade, what we call tradecraft. But that's evolved so much because what's happened is, that edge of having an integrated system integrated uh, all the way from upstream production down to uh you know refiner and then the end user you know in a major that's the definition of a major really they, they can see the whole chain if they've got a big enough presence they can see every region all these refiners where the demands are where the pockets of demands are and the supply and that allows them to have a very good idea of what's going to happen on these differentials or even the outright price the problem is the data and technology push, which some people say has been very slow, including myself in oil, but really where it, I would say it hasn't been that slow is in the physical market. So the access to information for understanding storage, understanding uh, supply and demand, these kind of things, that's heavily democratized because you've got you know machine learning models, like very high-end machine learning models with access to a huge amount of data, basically giving you the highest level possible analysis on forward supply and demand storage and ship tracking. So now, whilst that used to be a, an incredible edge, pretty much everyone who wants access to it and is willing to pay has that information now. So the integrated system idea is just not, it's just not an edge or, or not nearly as much as an edge. But worse than that, you know, if everyone's got the same information and the oil market is a market that likes to move in herds, 
they all hear the same information from the same analysts, from the same data, and they all end up going the same way. So what happens is supply and demand gets priced in effectively, right? The definition of priced in is the people who can react to these things, they've reacted. So once all the people that could buy because we're undersupplied have bought, by definition, that's priced in. But what happens next? Well, you've got this layer on top, which is people speculating who have no access to physical, people who are just systematic trading or you have no idea why people are trading, but all we do know is the financial volumes getting higher and higher and higher and higher and higher, whereas the physical growth is nowhere near that growth. So by definition, the moves are much more financially led than physically led. Yeah, and I want to come back to this because I think, mm. so So first off, let, let me just see if I, I've got this right. So traditionally, your edge as a physical player was, of course, your access to proprietary information to allow you to build your supply and demand models. But what's happened is, both that it, that information now is more broadly available, you can buy it, mm-hmm. but actually you're getting a much more accurate picture on the forward curve now as a result of all of these new contracts being available, um, mm-hmm. everything being on exchanges, that in reality you're, we're seeing much more immediately the accuracy of the forward curve to the reality of the supply and demand before we get into then the role of systematics and financial traders and so forth. Absolutely, absolutely correct. Yes, but I think it almost it's almost the that is the logic. But actually, it's almost so financialized that where the forward market is trading, and it might have got there for any number of reasons. But that, given the matching of the derivative market with the physical market, if the price on the forward curve of a certain differential or certain contract moves, that might open up economics for a refiner or an arbitrage trader or a producer. And so they act on that economics ahead of time, lock it in with a derivative trade. And that then will lead to, you know, three, six, 12 months down the line, a real movement of physical that only happened because the forward curve allowed it to be priced in. They locked in that price. And then in a sense, you have the physical market playing out ahead of time because they, once they hedge, that's a definition of hedging. They're going to they're have to commit to moving those physical barrels. So rather than say, well, look at the supply and demand right now, look at storage, look at what the ships are doing and what do we think growth is going to be? That was the old way of doing things. Now it's like, well, that's A, already everyone kind of has that view, but B, that's just what's happening using information right now. Have you factored in the information that's playing out on the forward curve, which is all these refiners or producers already committing to moving barrels to Singapore or moving barrels to Europe and and supplying with more jet fuel than diesel because the differential is skewed enough for them to switch their economics. These things are not talked about as much as they should be. And they are really governing not just market price action, but actually physical movement of barrels more and more so. And it's it's a fortuitous thing because a fortuitous cycle, because the more that happens, the more the exchange grows and the more financialization there is, the more that people are understanding it and there's more transparency there's more scale so the quotation mark simple trader or unsophisticated trader is now a lot more sophisticated and can take more ownership over their hedging and it's a bit of a disaster for the top guys because that democratization doesn't suit them if everyone can do their job and don't need to go to them to get a price go to them to get understanding of where markets are they can see it themselves they're in a lot better position to negotiate physical and they're in a lot better position to just keep it to themselves so mapping the global movement of oil becomes a lot harder as well. There's just been a big democratic exercise that might look like it's just about financial volumes increasing, but it's the ramifications across the oil market have been huge. 
fascinating. Okay, so let's put a pin in that because we're going to come back to that. Before we get there, one of the things of, about the increase in the, the, the increase in financialization of this market has been, I want to talk about liquidity and I want to talk about participants because they play into this. But first off, what has it meant for liquidity? You mentioned earlier about the banks getting out. You know, has you know, where is the liquidity coming from in these markets? So banks pulled out, and um, this is where um, I came in very ultimately lucky with the timing. I mean, at the time in 2012, there was it was a very very tough job market, and it, it's quite random to think about it because it wasn't 2008. We'd moved on from 2008, but it was 2011, 2012 was a very very tough job market. You could not get a trading job. I think it was the average age was like 30 to 35 for a physical. Yeah. You, know, you remember, right? Okay, well, yeah. I remember. So, <laughs> yeah, it was a tough, tough to be a search that, consultant. That's really interesting. Days. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, I can't imagine. I, I, I was seeing it from a graduate point of view, but I wasn't even thinking, yeah, that the whole market must have been suffering as well. But, you know, this job advert came out being like, we only want junior traders and we only want junior traders to trade financial oil. And this just like, you know, just didn't exist. You know, you thought, how do I get a job as an oil trader? There weren't jobs. So what happened was my last boss, uh, Alf Salty, he started up Mandara and he actually came from an investment bank or investment banks. And he set up this small trading operation to do exactly, to, to basically capitalize on this exact thing. Banks were starting to pull out. He had a very kind of safe arbitrage type model and derivatives. And so he wanted to essentially apply that now that there was more accessibility to the exchange, less barrier of entry and do it himself. So he went about hiring, you know, a good 15, 20 traders and had a very good process for identifying talent. There was a guy called James King, you know, ex-special forces guy, performance guy. And he had a very interesting way of looking at accessing talent. And we had basically in 2012, they hired some really basically good young kids and we were worked to the bone, but really it was that kind of core 10 to 15 to 20 traders in that year that have moved on now 10 years later to make up probably about seven or eight different market making outfits that do probably around, I would argue about 60%, 50, 50 to 60% of the swap trading volumes. So it's completely blown up in this area. It's, 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 like a, it's like a philosophical question. How did that happen? But I think you have to judge all these things in one. It was a good idea, first of all, by ALF, to hide the right type of people that were able to disrupt an oil market, which essentially means very disciplined, very low risk, looked for the easy kind of efficient, inefficient trades, arbitrage type trades that every single oil trader wasn't willing to take. You know, there's this mentality of kind of shoot from the hip. That's still it's kind of there's a bit of legacy in that. You know, I'm an oil trader. I get all my information from my relationships from down at the pub. What do you know? It's all about physical. So that kind of mentality was, we didn't realize, but absolutely perfect for us because we came in humble, beaten down type people. You know, you're so lucky to have this job. Absolutely agreed. Just wanted to get on with it and were able to kind of pick up, you know, essentially the pennies that no one else was willing to pick up. But then that became you know, a kind of PL buffer. You make more money doing that, then you can start to evolve your trading strategy a bit more. Then you can have more of a presence. Then you can scale your volume. And before you know it, the whole market dynamic has completely changed because I think the main thing I'd say is changed is when previously traders would trade a front tenor, they would expect that front tenor to relate exclusively to that tenor's supply and demand economics. So for example, if I say May or so June contract right now is the front month, they say, well, right, well, I need to know about 
whatever barrels are used to price that month. So it might be the end of June, late July cargoes will price June settlement price based on the price reporting agency's uh, assessments. But that basically went from being most of the of how it settled to suddenly there was these curve strippers or market makers, liquidity providers who could take flow from pretty much anywhere in the oil market and suddenly influence the prices uh, just by just by arbitrage. So for instance, you're trying to trade the June contract and you could trade, you could get a massive flow in Q4 or Q1 next year. And then you would then trade the June versus the Q1 next year, not caring anything about supply and demand, just, just trying to bring the curve together because it's all mathematically linked, stripping out the arbitrage opportunity in a relatively basic way. So suddenly a Q1 buying flow would influence June. And the traders hated it, right? It's like, why are these guys, you know, first off, it started off, who are these nuisance traders? Get them out of the way. To what are they doing? Like, how can you be selling to me? I'm a major, I'm a big physical player. I've got all the information. How can you keep selling to me? It's like, well, we're not doing anything particularly clever. We're just taking flow from somewhere else and we're stripping it out. And the great thing about the oil market is when you have so many participants with so many different agendas, they just want to get that done. So one trader might want to do a time spread because they might want to lock in some storage. Another person might go the other way on the time spread because they want to move barrels around the world and it might have a cross month exposure. There might be a refiner, there might be a producer. So this cross flow and having someone there to bring it all together has just changed that dynamic so much so that it's almost too frustrating for the traders because they can't really see where the flow is coming from unless they're doing all this themselves. So I do see a lot more of the trade houses and physical players starting to adopt more of the curves, forward curve strategy, because I think they're increasingly aware of the influence and to, to ignore it is silly, but there's obviously a lot more to talk about that. But I guess the original question, you know, the liquidity changes, it came from these market makers and still continues to come from these market makers. Mm. And to some extent, traders, trade houses themselves adapting themselves as well. So yeah, I want to come full circle back to that. Just, just one more thing. What about the role of algorithmic traders in just the pure sort of financial participants have we seen more of them come in you know what's what's their impact been as a result of this opening up of the of, of the types of contracts available to trade in oil funny enough i we still don't see pretty much anyone trading algorithmically or systematically in the swaps market i think the the issue is the barrier to entry is it's still it's not an otc market in terms of you don't need credit lines anymore but it is otc in the sense of you need to go through a broker most of the time. So there isn't a consistent platform that has all the numbers on. In order to get access to the market and the real market, you might get an indication on one or two platforms, but to really know where the market is and get access to those numbers, you need to use brokers. And they're a hugely important factor still to the market. So a systematic algorithmic type business model doesn't really fit, doesn't fit at all in that, unless you find some way to combine it with voice training, with algorithmic, and perhaps that's going on behind the scenes a bit more. What I am seeing is, and you're probably seeing it yourself as a search consultant, is a huge boom in data hires and analytic hires to try and, I think, more quantify and datify the physical side of things first. But I think there's an increasing understanding of wanting to do that in the paper market. It's just when it comes to executing, that's that's still the bridge. So it's very much what 
what I think the market expects is the market to the oil swaps market to essentially become like the benchmarks and for it to be a running price that you can see all the time. Yeah. Okay. So let me, uh, we've got an episode coming up about the algorithmic trading world and, you know, and how they're starting to try and get more granular and into these markets. So mm. listen out for that. But the, okay, so let me see if I can, <laughs> I feel like I need a PhD for this episode, but let me see if I can sort of contextualize what's going on. So historically, the edge was, as I said, supply and demand, but now you're getting to a world where the, the financialization of oil trading is, is so granular that to an extent, it's sort of flipped on its head, right? The, yeah. It's actually the financial trading is now as important, potentially even more at some points in terms of determining price than the actual underlying physical. And therefore, oil traders, whether, you know, the majors, whatever it might be, you know, there's almost a race to become as, as sophisticated on the financial side and understand what's going on in these curves. And, and that's to your point about some of them trying to build this because it's now so influential that they can't ignore it. That's absolutely perfect. Yeah, it's, it's exactly. And like some of the evidence of that is, for instance, the CFTC report, you know, the, the regulation in the States, they've always made it a requirement for the CME exchange in particular and some contracts on ICE to say, look, you need to publish every week what the open interest is. And not only the open interest, but the, the total open interest long and short by category. So producer and user, hedge funds, swap dealers. So traders not only are much more aware of this data as a way of influencing the markets, they know it has an influence. There's also traders out there, it's their staple data flow now. You add your supply and demand information with the flow information that they get from the CFTC. And that's certainly being adopted. And ultimately, what we've done is say, well, if we're market makers, and we understand that the market may, the market is understanding this open position and have a need to see this open interest data to understand the flows and who's long or short and the consequent influence of those. We're saying, well, look, we're not taking directional risk. So why don't we have a look at our trades? We dissect every single one of them and say, well, if we bought, that means the market sold. So strip out all of Onyx's positions or which side of the position we were. And effectively, we can show back in our data the long versus short ratio for a given swap contract. So they, we've only just started this in the, in the last month, getting the raw data together and getting it packaged. But that we think could make a huge difference to the to majors, trade houses, but certainly algorithmic systematic traders as well, because suddenly you're saying, look, the market's long and short on this basis. You know, maybe it's overextended, it's too long, or it's too short, or it's just at the beginning, there's not enough, hasn't been enough investment yet, which means we're set to go on a trend. Maybe we're sent, we're about to see a stop out. These type of things, I know the market is starting to understand is very, very influential. So the, the historical quantitative strategy of essentially buying the low and selling high would also be coupled with, but look, it's a historical high and it doesn't make sense physically. So give an example. Recently, the European gasoline versus the European NAPFA, that has a natural link because NAPFA can be blended into gasoline. So naturally speaking, if, if gasoline gets too high relative to NAPFA, you can essentially be buying more NAPFA and blend it more so into gasoline. So it should, you should sell that differential if it gets too high because the physical guys can come in and shift their physical uh, operations to, to capitalize on that. But the thing is, is that because we're so financialized, is that enough? And this is, this is quite complicated, but ultimately in this example, you're moving from a kind of generic quant view of the world, historical high, historical low, to saying, but then 
who is going to make the price go lower? You've got to look at financial markets as independent. So this differential, it's now all time highs. It makes no sense, right? Okay, so it should go lower. Problem is, is that everyone who can sell on a physical basis and lock this in as a hedge and then change their physical operations might have already done so. And actually it turns out they had. So you looked at our data and you said, God, they've sold on an 80 to 20 basis as in like they've sold versus buying 80% to 20%. So that's pretty much the max of our data that you get. And the open interest is way above the five-year average. So what that basically is telling you is everyone who could have sold to capitalize on this already has. So why is it still going up? Well, it's a differential. So it could be going up just because the momentum from the Arbob futures, which could be driven by who knows what. And um, that momentum becomes so relentless to the extent where if the market's already committed to how the, as far as they can commit on the sell side, actually the only way it can go is up because the only volume left to come into the market is buy volume for these guys stuffing out. So actually what you see is in these overextended markets, you see it in the data, then you hear it in the market. People saying, this makes no sense. There should be a physical ceiling. What's going on? I'm a physical guy. This just makes no sense. And he's saying, but I'm sorry, but that's not how financial markets work. The financial markets move by buyers and sellers. And if the sellers have already sold, then you're under pressure. And if the momentum keeps driving this differential up, which it did, what actually happens is it gets to breaking point and it gets to a certain level that they say, right, I have to stop out. Like no matter what's going on and how ridiculous this is, I can't hold on for this forever, even though we've got a big balance sheet. So what happened? We got a huge stop out. And that's really, I think, the game looking at these inflection points. When is the beginning of the trend, i.e. when there's low open interest and when there's, you know, we're set to embark on a, say, you know, a bull trend, you want to get there early. You want to know if you're too late, because if you're too late, then you're going to be susceptible to this type of thing. So you really need to look at the positioning as almost a base case before you even get involved. So Okay, so that's really interesting, right? Because, I mean, I want to talk about we're in a period of really significant volatility. Um, and you said something really interesting there, which I think is the crux of this discussion, which is that the financial markets are becoming more independent from the physical. And obviously, as an organization, you need to understand that and what the drivers are. And there's there's shades of kind of what happened with nickel at the LME, right? This Absolutely. this understanding that actually market risk you need is not as sufficient. You need to understand ultimately position risk and some of the drivers behind that because that's as you as you know example you use that's the real driver there, right? So can you just talk to how do you manage risk in this increasingly financialized world where? There are scenarios where the financial completely decouples from the physical and all the risk that entails for traditional traders in the market. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so fascinating because I think what made this really more understood was the whole GameStop and retail trading environment in 2020. Now, that GameStop stock that was essentially bought up only on the basis that it was released and made public or people understood from the data, publicly available data that the hedge funds were not just short, they'd gone too far. They got themselves max short. So they, they understood, the retail guys understood, if we keep buying this up, then they're not going to be able to fund the margin calls when they, for their losses. At some point, they're going to have to stop out. And when they stop out, that's when we'll sell. But until then, you know, the big issue then was the hedge funds got too short. It wasn't that they got short. It was they got cocky. So what's happening now is, definitely more of an understanding of that in stocks and it's it's been it's green great to see in a way but where it's not great to see is when it becomes disorderly for financial markets so you mentioned nickel and i was having this conversation well, i've had this conversation lots of times people saying it's it's so 
bad what the LME did, uh, you know, suspended all these trading. So, but this, it's just more complicated than that. The financial system, the financial derivative system is only as good as how it's designed and, and its makeup. So ultimately it's not designed to have one-sided risk in that way. So when, when a Russia crisis happens and it's already, market's already on a bullish run, it's already kind of moving to overextended. And then there's absolutely no reason to sell because every analyst is saying you should hold on to your risk if you're long. Everyone else is saying buy. It's an obvious bullish event. The market is not prepared to price or effectively set the price on a derivative basis for a market that has no sellers. So people need to remember this, like liquidity is always the most important thing. And this is where overhype can be really, really dangerous. So the nickel example, you know, that people were putting a squeeze on this short, it was also a very bullish environment. So the exchange has to say, well, look, we're only a venue to say if there's buyers and sellers, whenever there's a trade, you know, the mechanism is, okay, fine, that's the price. So at some point they have to close. And this is where the issue comes, right? We have to close the market at some point. But when it closes, then when it reopens and everyone in the world quite literally wants to buy and there's no one to sell, how does the exchange start the, start trading? How do they say, okay, fine, this is where the starting price is. There's no trade because there's no sell side. So it can just keep gapping up. So that's what happens. So nickel just, it blew up, huge, huge rally. And they had to say, right, limit up. It needs to stop. So we're just going to suspend trading. And they give people some time to get their thoughts together and everything yeah. else. And the next day comes, same thing happens. And what can you do? The exchange has to say, look, do you want do you want it to just go to infinity? Or do you want this to be an orderly thing? And actually, this this was the fault of the over exuberant short and the overextension. Yes, but the lesser of two evils has to be to cancel those trades. Because otherwise, we're talking about a complete shutdown. And this is the thing, with derivatives being so important, if oil goes to 500, it might seem great for financial speculators. Great, the oil price has gone up, I've made loads of money. But the ramifications around the world are just too much for us to say, oh, what a, what a crap system. You know, this should, you know, this is really buckling. This is really bad. No, it's, it's not designed for this. And I think maybe the core issue is not so much the financialization, but maybe the leverage. So if everyone had to put down notional value, if they had notional value exposure, then of course, there'd be more cash in the market. People would be less willing to do that. That's potentially one thing. But I actually think what's worse than that even is how human behavior works, right? Why, why does everyone need to be so comfortable in a herd environment? So you've seen the oil market. One of my favorite things to do is to just type oil in Google and every day click the news section, right? And you just see the hype again and again and again. It's kind of like 80, 20, 80% 80 of the time is bullish. But even so, when the market turns, suddenly there's every article in the world is saying bearish. So people love to latch on and they love to be late. They love to be the late majority to every move in the market. So leading up to this crisis, it was the worst environment because the market was already getting talked up so much so that it was it was all hype. So every analyst was bullish and, you know, people want comfort in that as much as they say they don't. They do. And they want to be to be, to be able to justify what they're doing to their bosses and point to third party research. So that hype caused an already overinflated market. And when it came to the Russia, Russia Ukraine crisis, over the weekend, it was such an obvious thing, bullish impact on the market. But what actually happened? Too many people bought, the system couldn't cope, the price just shocked up to 137. And then the, then the exchange said, well, look, what do you want us to do? We have to raise the cash here. The volatility is insane. The prices are insane. You're going to need to put more cash down. And people are in uproar because that means they have to reduce their positions. But what do you want them to do? And on top mm -hmm. of that, why does the market price then go down? Doesn't that tell you everything? 
We have a, the biggest, most bullish event in the world ever, ever, ever. And what actually happened? The price went down $30 or even $40. And why? Because financial flows and positioning is what sets the price. And too many people were long and too many people were overhyped. And when they were told to de-risk from their risk managers because there was too much or there was a need for cash to hold these positions that they didn't have, then the only way it was down because they had to sell. And everyone, the very definition is if the market moves down, it's because people had to sell. And if it went down that aggressively, it means there was no one there to buy because everyone was already long. <laughs> you see what I mean? So yeah. it's, yeah, this is the roundabout. And is that, so, I mean, that's quite a, a striking statement effectively, which are we at a point where in this somewhat unique super cycle of commodities, if you believe in it, you know, but certainly a period of really high volatility across all of the energy markets, that the exchanges, the functioning of the exchanges isn't fit for purpose because it allows for too much leverage, for example. Now, are we endangering the overall stability of the market by this financialization coupled with very cheap money and low margin requirements? So I, I actually wasn't, as in, yes, the logic is very sound for what you're saying, but I actually think the exchange did a good job. And they said, look, we're raising the cash requirements. And if you don't like it, like, well, we don't care. I mean, what do you want us to do? We need to be, have enough cash here that we can continue to make the market orderly. It's not the exchange's fault. And so, so I'm dissociating between the LME now and ICE. You know, ICE in the oil market, they had to do what they had to do. They didn't say you have to sell. They didn't say the price is too high or the volatility is too high. They said, put more cash in if you want to trade. And it's completely reasonable why. And then the bank said, well, we're giving you all this leverage and the exchange has just come out and raised the, the margin requirements by 100%. You know what? That's not great. And actually, our own models are saying similar things. You know, whatever they say, times that by two and put that cash in. So suddenly the people who, it's not, it's not an issue having leverage. It's an issue that the people who have leverage aren't aware that as soon as that leverage gets cut because of cash, more cash required or too much volatility, they're not prepared for it in their trading strategy. And so what happens is you get all the volatility. So just coming back to more to the question is I would, or more the, the point I'm trying to make is it's not so much let's stop it. It's we've got to evolve in the way we're thinking. And I think people are and they are starting to realize this. But a binary, it's got to go up because it's a bullish event is really a very old school way of thinking. And really, it's about the exchange mechanism and the financial central uh, systems mechanisms. But I think they're working. I mean, we ended up being consolidating in, you know, what, five or six days. That, I think that's a that's a very good result, considering what, look what happened with nickel. They had to actually cancel trades. So I wasn't trying to say it's not working. I was just trying to say that as a function of all these things, the ownership is on you as a trader and is you as a risk manager or you as a firm to understand these things. This is this is risk. So if you, the difference between a retail yeah. trader and professional trader is what you're a professional risk manager. It's not, you're not hiring a trader to say, you know what, you're a guru. You just got amazing views. No, you're hiring them because they're professional risk managers and they, they can put on trades and, and money managers, right? Correct. That's another key part as Correct. well. Yeah. So what, what, what do you, so final couple of questions. So as I said, at the very start, it kind of starts out quite small, but has many, many cascading consequences for the sector. What is your advice, having built a team that's very successful at understanding the financial curve of, of the oil markets, what is your advice for the broader physical oil trading community? I mean, how do they get to a point where this level of understanding, this more granular view of risk that has been introduced as a result of the financialization of oil, 
How, what, what does it mean for them and their teams? What type of talent do they now need to have? What does you as an individual oil trader, what skill set do you need to evolve to be able to understand this obviously growing dynamic within the oil markets? So I think the, the good thing about this is that really it should have happened a while ago. I mean, every other financial asset class, there's traders who very much understand this game. Bank traders or, or uh, bond traders, FX traders, this is... I wouldn't say gimmicky, but this is stuff that they've known for a long, long time. So I think that it's about adjusting the mindset of the modern trader to be a data and analytical focus and skill set combined with an understanding of what governs the physical market. Of course, it's not like that's become obsolete, but I think there was an, there was an emphasis on, if you look at the trade houses and majors training programs, they, they give them two, three years to work in operations and, um, particularly operations, but also going around various different physical desks to understand the physical. But they get no real training on how to understand the curve, how the flows really work, how the concept of financial trading works. And that's a whole universe. I mean, you just said, you know, this PhD, you need a PhD sometimes to understand this. That's true. I mean, it's taken years and years and years and years to understand. So I would say you're going to trade the financial markets. Physical is just an element of it. There's a huge, huge element of understanding Okay, so to break it down, you need to understand, first of all, do you actually know what you're trading? When you trade a financial contract, remember that financial contract has a mechanism that ultimately sets the price. That It's not a given that it goes up because let's say it's a gasoline contract. Well, which gasoline contract? Because 92 octane Singapore gasoline, they might have a localized event in just Singapore that causes a price distortion that has no impact whatsoever on Europe. But at the same time, you know, when you're looking for a benchmark, you might got exposure on Singapore 92 octane gasoline as a way to hedge your Middle Eastern gasoline. And you're saying, well, that's not happening here. Why is there a price distortion? Well, it's because it's a localized event. So you need to make sure whatever contract you're trading, what physical is used to price that? What, what do the price reporting agency like Platts or Argus, what is their methodology? Because that's really the only thing that matters at the end of the day. And that's why the North Sea traders, you know, who trade dated Brent, there's only like seven or eight of them who really actually trade the underlying barrels that set that price. So what these guys are doing and, and where, their, where their interests lie is all that really matters at the end of the day. It's not really supply and demand and this and that and a global macro view. It's, that can be hugely distorted by something that one of these guys wants to do or one of them stopping out or something like that. So I think what you, ha what you have to do is first get a very good understanding of the positioning. So when a market is long or short, that will change how the price will move. One thing we always do, and it's very gimmicky, but it does work, is that, you know, that's a bullish headline that just came out. How much did the market react? You know, it didn't react that much, actually. Okay, there you go. The market's probably already long. Okay, let's start looking for data that backs up the fact that we've probably got a market that's gone too far. It's, 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 it's too invested on the long side. It might be susceptible to a, to a sell-off. If you still need to buy, you might say, okay, maybe I want to take some risk here and actually hold on, think I can buy lower. Or if you want to sell or you want to get short, you might be like, this is the perfect time to do it. And the opposite would be the case if it's a bullish event and the price goes very, very high. It means the market's too short. So just a simple assessment of positioning goes a long way. But then you, I think it's, it's, that's, that is too simple. I think these days you've got to get the data that gives you the information on really as, as much as you can, giving you as much of a picture as possible of how the market's positioned. Because then what will happen is, if you understand which way the market's positioned, long or short, where it's weighted, 
then you need to look at what the incoming flows are likely to be. Either they're a continuation of what they've been today in the last week, last month, and that's going to continue, or there's going to be a new flow based on the headline. How will the market react, given the way it's positioned, long or short? How will the market react to this new flow? So for instance, we've, broke, we've gotten to the price of $100 per barrel, and suddenly all the shale oil producers, that's the price they were looking for, and they're going to come in and, and throw some sell volume at the market because they were waiting for that level. Okay, well, it turns out the market's really long. So with this new flow coming in, there's going to be some downside volatility here, you know, buy volatility or, you know, prepare at least for, as opposed to just saying it's $100 per barrel or look how bullish the market is, is what does that mean now? What is that triggered for someone else? And how is the market positioned? So how is it going to take the new incoming flows? So not to labor the point, but understand the positioning and then try and get an understanding of what flow is likely to come next. Is there something on the forward curve that should suggest refiners are going to come in and hedge or a producer is going to come in and hedge or whatever? Because that's the new flow you need to be aware of. Is there a flow in somewhere else in the forward curve that is moving the contract you're interested in that you weren't aware of? Go and find out why. Is it going to keep going? Is it a bad time to be in this trade or is it just noise? You can make these assessments. I think the final thing is once you understand those two things, is you've got to understand the behavior that's likely to result. Because again, using an extreme example, if everyone's one way and everyone's long, then you get an event like a headline from a Chinese lockdown or whatever it is. The first thing that will happen is the new flow coming in is sell side. The next thing that will happen is the market can't take it because it's too long and it will start to be quite aggressive downside volatility. But what will happen next is because it's such aggressive price action, people get scared. So the behavior aspect becomes really, really interesting because behaviors change depending on how invested or underinvested people are. So then you get the fear and then you get that kind of financial bubble concept playing out all the time in the oil market. You know, are we have we been built up with media and enthusiasm and we're too overhyped? Because if we are, if we start to move down, then there's going to be panic and then there's going to be everyone heading for the exit door at the same time. And there's ways to identify that in the price action and say, look, this is clearly stopping out. Why don't we wait a while for them to stop out, track the volumes, track the open interest? Okay, we feel like they've stopped out now. Maybe this is the time to re-enter. Things like that. This is it's complicated, but at the same time, it is what you have to be doing. You're trading people and their decisions, not so much the the, the there's no supply and demand god. There's no physical god who says the price should be up or down. It's buying and selling flows. And the derivative market is so big now, it's 850% bigger. Than the, than the underlying physical volumes. So it is the other way around. The forward market, market plays out and the physical gets negotiated to the derivatives. So unfortunately, love it or hate it, you've got to understand that more so now than supply and demand. And that's, that's a perennial kind of, there's so many factors to it. The answer to your question for me is, is, is the data analytics side, the financial understanding side, but really the pure trading side. So a lot of the time, and it's not to slag the market off here. Obviously, they're all evolving and people are doing very, very well. But it's moving to more of an understanding that any other market, traders are traders in that they trade their opponent. They trade the market's behavior. An oil market, there is a resistance to that. So the new modern oil trader needs to have that in their locker massively. There's almost an argument that you get some leadership from equities trading in, right? Where this is exactly. this is the, the exact trading style. What does this mean? So taking that because oil is very much at the vanguard of the commodities world in terms of financialization are we seeing do you see this increasing granularity of derivatives available in other commodities you know are we going to see in 
five years time, certain wheat grains and so forth trading like this? Or do you think this, this is very unique to oil, given its position in sort of the global investing community, etc? Unfortunately, I think the answer is, um, particularly in the agricultural markets, again, this is not a new thing for agricultural markets. Um, they're a lot, they've been a lot more historically volatile. And this concept of limit up, limit down, when the exchange literally has to close because it's it's too far one way. You know, if you read something like Market Wizards in these books, they've been talking about agricultural markets in this way for 20 years. So it's not new to them. I think the hidden thing, what gets all the headlines is oil and natural gas at the moment. But certainly my network, at least people who are interested in the wider markets, commodity networks, uh, they're very concerned about agricultural markets. Yes, because the, the fundamentals tightening and, and there's no real way out, it seems. But worse than that, the financialization, exactly. Like this this exacerbation when everyone goes out to hedge at the same time their inflation or or buy because they can just see where it's going. That's putting the financial system under so much pressure that, yeah, I think, as, to be honest, it's, it's probably going to get worse. And it's probably going to be to the extent where actually oil seems more quite manageable. So that's the unfortunate truth, I think. And I, I hope I'm wrong. Well, it's been really fascinating, Greg. Do you want to just share where people can find you and, and Onyx's website and so forth? Absolutely. So it's onyxcapitalgroup.com is our core website. You can find everything we do there. But we're pretty active on LinkedIn. And that's just, again, searching either my name, Greg Newman. I post quite a lot on LinkedIn or uh, Onyx Capital Group and our associated companies on LinkedIn. And that's you find everything there. Well, it's been it's been fascinating. It's been slightly mind bending at times for me, but I'm sure not for our listeners. And uh, look, I, I hope we can have you back on in a year or so and kind of see how this is all playing out over a period of obviously extreme volatility and risk in the oil sector. I would love to. Uh, honestly, I, I think you break down and assimilate information very quickly for someone who doesn't who doesn't know this market. So uh, it's great listening to your podcast, and that was that was enjoyable too. So thank you. Well, you too, kind. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.